Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey everyone, it's Alden, the producer of Shut Up Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home, stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. On today's show, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 3 Crown Queen Raja, a celebrated makeup artist who appeared on nine cycles of America's Next Top Model. Raja talks about discovering a love of fashion at an early age. I would put a stone where the heel would go, and I would walk around the house with my dad's soccer socks and a stone at three. You know, so I knew that that clothing and styling and fashion was always going to be a part of my life. His first time at a gay club. I was probably 16 or 17 years old, and it took my breath away. Literally walking into the room, like socked me in the chest with power. I was like, wow. Working on America's Next Top Model as a lead makeup artist. I probably didn't make the same amount of money as the rest of the group, but they definitely knew that I was somebody that could carry out a mission. If they were like, hey, we're going to do a whole fucking shoot today and all the girls are going to be murdered and bloody. Can you find prosthetics and do you know how to do that? Yep, sure can. A phone call from RuPaul himself asking him to be on Drag Race. I thought maybe because I was so involved in makeup that I would be participating in doing makeup in it. But then I asked Rue on the phone, I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, do you want to be on the show or do you not? I had to answer yes or no, and my answer was yes. Learning to navigate reality TV his way. I threw probably about seven good tantrums, but I knew when to throw the tantrums. I was like, I'm not going to look like a spoiled fucking brat until those cameras are off, and then I'm going to go right up to the producer and tell him to fuck off. Watching drag go mainstream. I didn't do drag to read books to kids. I think it's wonderful that there are drag queens that do that and that that it's so acceptable that libraries... Why the fuck would I want to be in a library at 11 a.m.? reading books to kids. And loving RuPaul, in spite of Ru's status as a problematic figure within the LGBTQ plus community. It's like a, a relative that you respect very much, but you don't always, you don't always uh, agree with their politics, but you love their sense of style. And they make a fierce ass fucking uh, scalloped potato at, at, the, at the family Christmas dinner. Shut up, Evan! Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How is it going? Good. Excited for episode 14. But first, uh, we have something to talk about, 
I believe. We do. Uh, what a week in gay culture. What a week. Yeah, so I'll tee it up and then uh, we'll sort of discuss. But on Monday, May 4th, this adult film actor named Ian Frost posted a series of videos on his Instagram story, uh, 51 videos to be exact. And in these uh, videos, it was him and a group of about 20 to 30-ish people partying in his New York City apartment. Um, For anyone sort of wondering why that's bad, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And one of the key things that we can do as citizens of the world is to listen to scientists and stay inside uh, by ourselves, socially distant. Uh, So I uh, commented on his Instagram uh, and I wrote, you should be ashamed of yourself, as should all those in attendance at your party. This blatant disregard for our healthcare workers and human lives is disgraceful. And Ian commented back in real time uh, while the party was still raging on into the morning and said, a couple of those healthcare workers were here also with a shruggy face emoji. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I also messaged adult film star Shane Jackson, who was tagged in multiple posts from the party. uh, And he told me he was not actually in attendance. And I then told him that his friends should know better. And he responded by saying, why? They've all had the virus. Let people live. So, uh, New York City Council candidate and drag artist Marty Gould Cummings, friend of the pod, called the party a slap in the face to every healthcare worker, every person who has lost a loved one, every person struggling with finances because of the shutdown. So after comedian Philip Henry made the videos go viral, most of the party's attendees, including Frost, deleted their social media. Mm -hmm. One person that did not was the party's DJ, Alec Bryan, who released this statement on Instagram the next morning. He said, in the notes app, of course, he said, there seems to be a lot of communication surrounding a party I DJed Monday night. Just to clear things up, I was asked to DJ a small house party. I have been taking all precautions to socially distance, wear a mask, and hand washing very seriously to stop the spread. As many of us are now unemployed, I had an opportunity to avail myself of some needed money to pay my bills. If I have insulted anyone or made anyone feel uncomfortable by this event, I sincerely apologize as that was certainly not my intent. Now, of course, screenshots have surfaced of this DJ at the party with his mask wrapped around his neck. Yes. Not, in fact, wearing the mask. And mm-hmm. As some people might need to know, it seemed obvious, but some people might need to know, you actually need to wear your mask. Uh, parading it around as sort of a neck accessory is not helpful. Not the same. Yeah. So this is not an isolated incident either. There's another example I posted on my Twitter from Friday night of a similar uh, account. That user has now gone private as a result. So this sort of seems to be the trend, bragging about what's happening and then quickly realizing through people responding to it that this is uh, not the behavior that one wants to proudly boast about. And so this really begs the question of sort of like the ways in which we as gay and LGBTQ plus people behave in a time like this. And I know you have a story, a particular story um, of something that was deeply personal to you that relates to this. Well, yeah. um, One of the projects I had been working on was a screenplay about pre-Stonewall gay rights activism. And I had been getting dinners regularly with a historian named David Carter who wrote the book, Stonewall, the riots that sparked the gay revolution. Um, It's one of the books on Stonewall. It's incredibly well-researched. And if you have any interest in the riots, um, you should read it for sure. 
Um, and then I found out that just the other week he passed away of COVID-19. And one thing that struck me the most was how much history had just been lost because he knew so much. And unfortunately, it's only a recent thing that our history is being documented well. Before that, you know, traditionally, we have always had an oral history tradition of storytelling. And one of our storytellers is now gone from this virus and this behavior like at these parties, um, Rona Rave, Meth Gala, uh, whatever you want to call it, like that kind of behavior is responsible for the continued spread of this virus. And it's frustrating that it's our own community acting in a way that's directly leading to the deaths of our elders and the erasure of our history. No doubt. I think I, I absolutely agree. I think that story epitomizes sort of the importance of a conversation like this in terms of uh, not necessarily doing this for ourselves, but doing this for others. And of course, that includes healthcare workers, but but specifically people like the man you just mentioned who have a legacy to pass forward. When we see behavior like this from people, and especially more and more and all these people having fun, it makes other people, I think, feel like, well, if they're doing it, maybe we could do it. Yep. Sometimes it's easy to be like, well, who would think that? And it's like, you know what? In this world, there are some thoughtless people out there. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing about displaying behavior like this on social media. There's been a lot of conversation about this, the specific uh, shaming of these people and some people going back and forth about like whether or not it's productive. And I just wanted to say something about that because I feel strongly about this specific topic. The implication that one is doing this call out with some sort of activism attached to it, like the implied notion that in posting it, we're trying to bring awareness and thus bring about some kind of action is false. Of course, I can only speak on behalf of myself, but when I call these things out, I'm not doing it in a way that's like um, hand wringing or, or, or trying to galvanize people to come together and cancel this person. I think for me, it's just an example of the Meryl Streep scream. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a moment where I see something and I just want to fucking scream. It's a commentary on the egocentricism and the mindlessness of some parts of our humanity, or for me specifically in the gay community. It's not intended as my sort of contribution to thinking that I am in some way making things better. I just want to like distinguish those two things because I think I think shaming is I am pro shaming, but I also don't think shaming is productive. And I think those two things can both exist. I hear what you're saying. I think in this specific case, though, I feel the opposite, that they should be shamed and 100% like that DJ should not be getting booked again. Like the difference here is like this is not just eye roll inducing behavior. This isn't just a uh, a lack of reading the room. This is affecting people's lives and contributing to people dying. And I think that in that difference, it's like shame them all you want, cancel them all you want. That should be happening. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where that public shaming and that canceling makes people act differently. So if that is what we have to do to wield power to like get this to stop, so be it. T, counterpoint, I think there's something in messaging these people directly and not doing it online that can actually 
affect greater change if that's the goal. So I feel both ways about it. I, of course, I'm pro shame. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm literally doing it. But at the same time, the reason why I originally DM that one porn star was to say to him like, because he was like, well, I wasn't there. And it's like, yes, but your friends were there. And so you have an obligation as someone who knows these people directly to like, you know, tap them on the shoulder from a social distance, tap them on the shoulder and say, dude, you can't be doing this. You can't be having house parties right now. My God. So anyway, what a mess. I don't know if it's, it's going to be a trend that we see continuing into the summer. I think if anything, it will force those doing it to be less fragrant about the fact that they're doing it, which is like, I guess the lesser of two evils. Um, you know, obviously they shouldn't be doing it to begin with, but you know, the, yeah. So gay culture, uh, what a time to be in a pandemic. But all that aside, we have a little bit of a a treat. As soon as we booked Peppermint and then we had detox on the show, I started asking people sort of who else they wanted on the show uh, of the Rue girls. And the person that everyone kept talking about uh, just so happened to be my favorite queen of all time, um, which is Raja. And it's a real treat because Raja doesn't do a ton of interviews. And beyond that, it's just a conversation that excites me. She's just someone who is a fascinating person. Uh, and I'm really, really glad that we got to spend this time with her. Great, let's get to the interview. He is the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race season three, becoming the third crown queen, and to this day, the show's only American winner of Asian descent. As a makeup artist, he has painted for a clientele including Pamela Anderson, Dita Von Teese, Adam Lambert, Iman, Twiggy, Iggy Azalea, and more. In 2005, he started to be the head makeup artist on Tyra Banks' reality show, America's Next Top Model, where he worked on the show from cycles 4 through 12. In addition to Drag Race, he has appeared as an intergalactic creature in the music video for Blondie Single Fun, shot a diesel campaign directed by David LaChapelle, guest starred on The Simpsons, and been featured on the cover of New York Magazine. I'm not a big fan of favorites, but I gotta be honest, he is my favorite because he's so edgy, he's studied, and he's brimming with excitement about creating art. I love that. He is Sutan Emerald, aka Raja. So I want to start by congratulating you. You just celebrated your nine-year anniversary of Snatching the Crown on Drag Race. Well, to be exact in the math of this, it is exactly 10 years. Oh, because okay. My win and the announcement of my win was a year after. So I basically had to hold in this secret, like I had to clench my ass for a whole year and not tell anybody. Of course, I told my family and I told a few friends. I was working for Adam Lambert at the time. I had to take a break from touring with him. And before I left, he was like, bitch, if you don't fucking win this. And I was like, I'm bringing back a crown. So I went back on tour with Adam immediately after. But technically, it would be exactly 10 years now. But according to the fandom and the audience, it is only nine. But it feels like longer, but it also feels like not that long ago. You know, what's interesting, I recently went and rewatched that finale episode. And uh-huh. unlike the finales today that are taped in front of these huge audiences and they film multiple endings, it was just the top two, you and Manila, the three judges. That was it. When you left that night, what was that feeling like? Because you left a winner, but as you said, it would be a year before you could actually let people know. 
I was the last season that they ever had that sort of final ending because even before the cast was announced for season three, Perez Hilton had already leaked out that I won. And it became a big deal and it was all over. Nobody even knew who was on the cast, but they're like, well, basically Raj won. People ask me all the time if I've rewatched it after nine years. And there have been occasions where I've sort of run across it or I've watched a few episodes, but it feels a little different now, 10 years later, because 10 years later, I'm an entirely different person. Physically, I'm a different person. I don't have the same lithe, skinny body that fit into a sample. I was no one's fame or tchotchke of today. It was a different me. I think also I came off as sort of arrogant and elitist at some points. We were still allowed to kind of touch on cultural appropriation before that even became a thing. I didn't know what cultural appropriation was as a term until after Drag Race, until maybe after two years after Drag Race. So a lot of progress has happened in the drag community and now the drag industry. Is, yeah, and it really has blown up and become this full-on industry. It's remarkable to see what has happened. And I almost didn't go on Drag Race because at the time it was such a small show and I was focused so much on my makeup career that I couldn't see drag as being like, I, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was going to damage my career as a makeup artist. I was very concerned about it. So I almost didn't do it. But now, 10 years later, thank the goddess I did, <laughs> you know, because it has truly, truly changed my life. And first of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me on here. I am a big fan and follower. The reason why I came to you and started following you is because a lot of the girls on Drag Race... You know, we have our own, like, group texts, little clusters of group texts, conversations that you can only have with some girls, if you know what I mean. Uh -huh. And some of your posts have always come up. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and it's hilarious. Like, I think uh, I think you provide such a really uh, great honesty. It reminds me a little bit of Diet Prada. And you're, like, my form of, like, uh, fashion and pop culture news the way Bill Maher is on HBO. Look, I don't like to play the favorites game, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you are my favorite queen of all time to ever. Drag queen, period. Not even talking about Drag Race. I have been a fan of yours always. It's such an honor. You are that bitch. So thank, thank you. you. That is so lovely. I needed that today. Thank you so well, much. Well, you know, when you say like you have those side messages with some of the girls who kind of like get it, I feel like from the moment I saw you on television and this was via Top Model. I was like, this person gets it. I think I get it. I get a lot of things. I get a lot of things more than most people do, but I always encounter other people who get it more than I do. And then I aspire to, to be just as enlightened as them. So yeah. I, all of this is all relatable. So let's start things off by rewinding the tape a little bit. I want you to take me back to young Sutan. I know you bounced between California and Indonesia when you were young. Well, the Indonesia part is a section. It's like between ages three and nine, which is really your formative years. But mostly I grew up here in Southern California. I was born in Baldwin Park, California, which is 25, 30 minutes away from where I live now. And in the 90s, we returned to the U.S. when I was nine, and then I went back to school in that part of Southern California, which at the time was very much, you know, it was the 80s and into the early 90s. You know, it was suburban, 
We all had our own houses and yards, but it was still the hood, especially in high school. That's when the gangs were kind of a big deal. I graduated high school in 1992 when the Rodney King beating happened, literally just blocks away from where I live now in Koreatown. Being gay was still, it was still rebellious as fuck. We had just gotten into this like revolutionary level during the AIDS crisis. Before that, before I even came out of the closet, it was really a huge panic, AIDS. And my interest in drag really wasn't necessarily in drag at first. It was really watching a lot of television, talk shows, Geraldo Rivera and Bill Donahue, and they would bring on drag queens and club kids as these sort of sideshow anomalies, you know, for people to gawk and look at and jeer and laugh but really also to learn. And so my father's a minister. So I grew up in a pretty religious household, but my parents also were, you know, were around in the 60s and I had an older dad and they lived in San Francisco after they got married in like the 70s. So they knew what was up. They knew that, that I was part of that tribe. And there was a little bit of a fight. I think they didn't want me to live a difficult life. There wasn't quite the same visibility that there is now with queer people and gay people. That's really kind of how I grew up and nightlife and the club life and the attraction of club kids and the grit and kind of punkness of drag of the time. And it was very rebellious and provocative. That's what got me into it. Do you remember the first time that you went out to the club? The first time I went to a gay gay club where there was full-on dancing. 1991, I'd say. I was probably 16 or 17 years old. And it took my breath away. Literally walking into the room, socked me in the chest with power. I was like, wow. If I walk into fucking Mickey's on a Monday here in West Hollywood, I guarantee no one will have that same. Maybe it, maybe it does for people who are experiencing that for the first time. But, you know, it was a very, very special time where the internet did not exist. So sort of experiencing it was absolute magic. I feel very lucky to be in that crossroads of the 90s and how primitive it seemed into technology, into text messaging, into social media, and into what we're doing now. Yeah. I'm talking to you on a fucking screen. I'm in my living room, you know, so I, I got to see all of those things happen. Before you were Raja, you were going by Crayola in the in the very beginning. Is that correct? That was very brief. That was because I didn't realize that drag was even part of my thing. So everyone had cute names. Everyone's names in the club kid world were people like Richie Rich and Bloody Blah. And they all had cute, fun names. And I was like, well, I want to... And I was definitely part of the rave scene, too, because the rave scene was very new. And I was like, well, Crayola sounds like a... Because I'm, you know, I'm all the colors in the box or whatever I was thinking. And then that was very short-lived because the version of Club Kid that I was doing was translating as beautiful girl in funny outfits, you know? And so that's when I started to explore the drag part, the fishiness of it all. Yeah. And, And that kind of took over when I was about like 18 or 19 and people started to realize, yeah, I mean, of course it was an 18, 19 year old version of me. It was super thin and tall and that part took over when did you start to sort of refine the look well i was also a kid who played alone a lot which for instance this quarantine is like not a problem to me 
the loner part of me that likes to be at home and create and just kind of live in a bubble of imagination is very, very satisfied right now. So that part of me has always, always been a big, big part of my life. But what was the actual question again? When we... did you start to develop the aesthetic of, you know, okay, play, like, yeah, fashion and beauty? Right, right. So as a kid, I played alone a lot. And I remember being in Indonesia and my mom would often be looking for me and I would just find a corner somewhere. I, I had very special corners in the house where I would take bed sheets and linens and dish rags and hours and hours and hours of just me alone making costumes and creating outfits and pretending to have shows. And there was no audience. It was just me and this imaginary world. Fashion and styling and creating something onto the body has been part of me. I'm not going to fucking kid you since birth. I can remember as far back as being around three years old and figuring out how to make high heels out of my dad's soccer socks because my father was a soccer player and he had soccer socks so those fit like thigh highs on my three-year-old legs and i would put a stone where the heel would go and i would walk around the house with my dad's soccer socks and the stone at three so i knew that that clothing and styling and fashion was always going to be a part of my life and i think one of the reasons why i even got into doing makeup and drag was because of my love for fashion I wasn't into pop stars as much as I was into models on the runway. Fashion to me was visual, it was wearable art, and it all made sense to me. That really started at a young age. You really witnessed the rise of the supermodel. Who were the girls for you that you looked at and really emulated? I was mostly attracted to the POC girls because those are the ones that I could look close to. Mm -hmm. I loved Naomi Campbell with the blue contact. I loved Tyra Banks. All the black girls, all the Asian girls, all the more exotic girls, the girls that I could definitely try to emulate were the ones that I really, really loved. But I loved all the supermodels. I have met and befriend a few of them over the years. And it, it's funny, it's mostly interesting because a lot of us are around the same age. And at the time that they were stars, I looked at them as being so much older because they were doing such cooler things than I was. They were traveling around the world and on catwalks. They called them catwalks then. <laughs> but, you know, Tyra Banks is only like, I think we're the same age or like maybe she's a year older than me, but I never thought about it that way, you know? So speaking of Miss Banks, as I said earlier, you first came on my radar via America's Next Top Model. You appeared on cycles four through 12 of the series, if I'm correct. Yes. And you really were just a staple. I mean, as a young gay kid growing up, when I saw you on that show, which was predominantly featured was female models at the time, but then there were these fabulous queer side characters on the show, like mm -hmm. yourself and the Jays. And it was just this fabulous sense of fashion being more than just models, that there was this mm -hmm. whole world of fashion. And to many people like me, that was our first exposure to that. Sure. So I know you mentioned you were emulating Tyra up on the catwalk. How did you two first meet? Well, the reason why I actually got onto Top Model was because Matthew Anderson, who is who was RuPaul's makeup and hair guy for many years, for like 30 years, I met RuPaul and I met Matthew at, this is way before Drag Race. And RuPaul was going through this period in his life where 
he had gotten sober and he had moved to LA and he bought this house here. And so he was just kind of like wandering about and he would go to all of the drag shows. And at the time there was no drag race. So drag it was still raw and there wasn't as much of it in West Hollywood. And Rue would go to all of them. And I was in most of the drag shows in town because there was very few of us in comparison to what it looks like now. But Rue was always at one of the shows. There was a time when Delta worked she hosted a show in Pasadena at this fucking dive bar. Swear to God, there was no stage. We literally had a bed sheet as our curtain. We got ready in the parking lot, but RuPaul showed up and RuPaul held the spotlight for us while four of us performed. So there was that time. Then I met Matthew through RuPaul because they would just come to the club. So I didn't get top model through Tyra. I got it through Matthew and I got to meet her through this process and I will never forget the first day that I met her and it was during the time when she was wearing the red hair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was, kind of a, it was kind of like a back home Rachel. I, it was like I almost practically almost shit myself. It was one of those moments where where the person that you've idolized for so long. It's not like today. You don't you didn't have the same access two people. So seeing them in person was definitely magical. And I've had a lot of moments like that with Tyra. Even when I was working with her, there were moments where she would walk onto the set and you just, you could not deny how beautiful this woman was. She's like 5'10", 5'11", curvy as fuck. I don't even like girls, but I wanted to touch her big boobies and her big ass. She's so beautiful and her face has got this perfect alien symmetry. So I'm still a big fan of hers. I mean, I lampooned her on Drag Race, but I'll always be a Tyra Banks fan. She's a little cuckoo, but maybe that's what I like about her. The older she gets and the more cuckoo she gets, the more I'm endeared to her. Of course. So you come on the show in season four, or excuse me, cycle four. There's been three cycles. The show had already established itself as this huge hit. And this is before reality competition shows were everywhere. This really was in so many senses, the blueprint, so much of what Drag Race is, is literally picked up from what Top Model built. What were your expectations of what your time there would be like? I got my own education of reality TV and just the behind the scenes of not necessarily just reality TV, but TV in general. I got to learn so much. I got to learn so much from the crew. And so by the time I got to Drag Race, I knew it was up. Like, I knew when the cameras were on. I knew when the cameras were off. I am known, if you talk to any of the girls from the season that I was on, I threw probably about seven good tantrums. But I knew when to throw the tantrums. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to look like a spoiled fucking brat until those cameras are off. And then I'm going to go right up to the producer and tell him to fuck off. So I had that advantage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot doing both of those shows. I okay, but I'm not, I'm not done on Top Model just yet because okay. you, your first season on the show happens to feature the iconic Be Quiet Tiffany moment. And you come in here with a defeatist attitude. I don't have a bad attitude. Maybe I am angry inside. I've been through stuff, so I'm angry. Yes, but it's not, this is not, be quiet, okay, Tiffany. Be quiet! That's what is I'm wrong with you. Stop not, it! I have never in my life yelled at a girl like this. When my mother yells at this, it's because she loves me. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you learn something from this? When you go to bed at night, 
time you lay there and you take responsibility for yourself, because nobody's going to take responsibility for you. You roll in your eyes and you act like this because you've heard it all before. You've heard it all before. You don't know where the hell I come from. You have no idea what I've been through. But I'm not a victim. I grow from it and I learn. Take responsibility for yourself. So I just have to ask, do you remember that moment going down in real time? Well, at the time I was still working as Matthew's assistant. So he was the guy who got to be on set to see all that. So I didn't actually see that happen in real time. I didn't get to see it live, but I did hear about the aftermath the following day when the girls had to come do a shoot. And Matthew gave me all the tea because he was there. He was like, oh my God, you know, and Jay, I had become really good friends with, with um, um, Miss Jay mostly. She was like, oh, Miss Tyra lost it, honey. And so the drama I heard about it the day after, I did not get to be in the room when that happened, but I do remember it pretty vividly. Do you remember the first time you saw that clip? Oh, yes. I mean, I watched, you know, you didn't binge watch a show. You have to wait every week and watch the goddamn show. I remember seeing that episode and I reacted to it the way people reacted to the way they watch uh, Drag Race now. You yeah, know, it, totally. It, it was like one of those moments where you're like, what the fuck? She is going off. She's losing it. <laughs> it's such a fun clip because I'll revisit it now thinking, oh, it, 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 quite, it can't possibly hold up. And it does every single time. So you worked on the show, as you mentioned, for eight cycles. What were the highs and lows of that experience? I know you mentioned you learned a lot about the mechanisms of reality TV, but what about just in terms of your art and your craft? Yeah, the highs were definitely the things that I remember the most. There were so many pros to that that I will never, ever forget, including the first time I got to travel for work as a makeup artist, doing shoots in some of the most the most amazing places you can think of. The Great Wall of China, the Forbidden City in Beijing, a rainforest with two live elephants in Thailand. I remember a, that too. A live bull in a bull rink in Barcelona, which I hated. But there was all of those really, really awesome, awesome, awesome moments. Tyra Banks took me around the world. And when we arrived at these places, we were treated very well. We stayed at one <laughs> fantastic resorts and hotels, and that part was awesome. But then there was also the pressure of working with a team of people who also may have treated me a certain way, and, and I probably didn't make the same amount of money as the rest of the group, but they definitely knew that I was somebody that could carry out a mission. If they were like, hey, we're going to do a whole fucking shoot today and all the girls are going to be murdered and bloody. Can you find prosthetics and do you know how to do that? Yep, sure can. You know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm just one of those people who can kind of do whatever. We're going to do a shoot in a meat locker. We want you to do some crazy, like, kind of 60s punk thing okay, sure, why not, you know? In that respect, I really love the freedom of that. I love that I got to travel so much. I love that I got to meet so many people and just being in all those different places. Who's your favorite winner from your time on the show? Oh my God, that's a tough one. I know. For today, I'm going to say Carrie D because Carrie D uh, last week reached out to me on Instagram and we were just kind of like, and it just went right back to like us being kids. And she was on there a long time ago, Yeah, you know, and it just the same goofiness and, you know, and we were just joking. We we're talking about our, our lives. And so for today it would be Carrie D, but I love Jasmine. Jasmine was a fantastic winner. She was fun. Oh my God. There's a hummingbird in my tree. Two of them. <gasps> they never come. Anyway, this is a magical moment. There's never hummingbirds in my trees. Anyway. So when did you decide to leave the show and why? I didn't decide to leave the show. <laughs> we were all canned. We were all fired. Like as soon as the recession hit, I mean, I moved to New York to finish seasons, I guess, 11 and 12. That was 2007 through 2009, I suppose, for the dates. But magically, the summer before I had fallen in love with a boy in Provincetown who happened to live in New York. And so I moved with the job to New York and I lived in Brooklyn with my boyfriend for two years. And then the recession hit and they were like, bye, all of you, all the stylists, all the hair people, you as the key makeup artist, we're going to start all fresh, all new, different crew. And if you watch from seasons 13 on, you see that the makeup artists are all different on, on every set, which makes sense, which is really what the real modeling world is like. You don't mm -hmm. always get the same people. You don't always get the same characters. So, you know, I understood it. I was like, okay, that's fine. And I'm just going to figure it out. And then I did. And then probably a year or two after that, yeah, 2011, I was on Drag Race. So before I ask about Drag Race, my last question, top model-wise, when was the last time that you spoke to Tyra? Oh my God. That is an interesting question because I hadn't seen her in years, years, years. And the last thing that I had heard from her was when I won, she tweeted a congratulatory tweet. I remember. That was the last time I heard from her. But then a few years ago, <laughs> I was in San Francisco doing a gig and I had to take an afternoon flight. But by the time I got to the airport, my whiskey drinks were like, I was, I was pretty drunk. So I get into my first class seat, seat 1A. There was nobody sitting next to me. And, you know, I shut the window. I close my eyes for a second. And as a plane goes up into the sky, I get uh, the flight attendant wakes me up and says, Mr. Amaral, would you like anything to drink? And so when the plane left, there was nobody sitting next to me. But when the flight attendant woke me up, I felt a presence. There was suddenly somebody there. So I answered the flight attendant. I said, yes, I would like a, a glass of white wine. And as I finished my sentence, the person that's sitting next to me, who I haven't acknowledged at all because I was asleep and drunk, 
goes, Sutan? And I like looked over to my left and it was fucking Tyra Banks sitting in the first class seat from a flight to San Francisco to LA. The thing is she had caught the flight at the end. So while I was asleep, they had sat her in the back and she requested a front seat and it happened to be next to me. So for that hour, I drank my white wine and we caught up. I had no idea that she had a kid. She has a kid now. Yeah. And she showed me pictures of her kid and showed me her boyfriend or her husband, whatever. But it was really interesting. And, and it was like one of those moments where it was like a full circle moment. Like, wow, what is going on? I'm coming home from my drag gig in San Francisco and here is Tyra Banks. And it's, it's just one of those things where I, I've sort of let go of the word coincidence in my life. There is no coincidence to anything. There was a reason why I needed to wake up from a whiskey, <laughs> yeah. a whiskey stupor and wake up to one of the people who really made such a huge influence in my life. And the only last time I had contact with her was on the day that George Michael died. And I texted her because we had traded phone numbers and I texted her the Too Funky video where she's 19 years old in it. And I texted that to her and she sent me a little TRI emoji or something. And, but that was the last moment. So we don't really hang out. You know, we, we were never really, really, really close. So um, it, was, it was definitely a profound moment for sure. Before we start talking about Drag Race, let's take a quick break. And we're back. So switching gears to Drag Race, I want to start by asking, when was the last time you drank absolute vodka? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> God, let me think about that. Probably not that long ago. I'm such a wine drinker. Like people know now that I'm a full-on wino. I am a Sauvignon Blanc and you know, great yep. juice girl. So hitting any kind of vodka is really harsh on me. But the other day when quarantine started, I was having a very frustrating sort of day. And I was like, you know what? Fuck the wine today. Give me that little bottle of Absolute. So that was probably the last time. Wow, incredible. So you mentioned that you first encountered RuPaul years and years earlier at the club when Ru was coming to see your gigs. There's a lot of rumors out there about your relationship with RuPaul and you two knowing each other really well and being essentially friends. It's even been said that RuPaul called you, wanting you, begging you to be on the show. Yes. Is there any truth to that? Yes. <laughs> All of it. It's all true. It's only a rumor because it's never been publicized, but you know, I can talk about it pretty freely now because I think that Drag Race at season three was still a very, very experimental concept. You know, they had one season, the first one, the throwaway season, because they had bad filters. The second one, where it just first got interesting and juicy and hold interest. And then they had hoped for the third one to give a little bit more of a bang, I'd say. They wanted something that had more personality, more interesting ideas. And the weirdos, the weird drags, hadn't caught on to it yet. So I think that collectively the producers including rue wanted a particular type of drag represented a drag that felt gender fucked they needed somebody who could come in with a sense of understanding of drag history for instance so i think that i was definitely handpicked for a very particular reason i don't think that they chose me because they wanted me to necessarily win but they wanted a, a different type of drag represented and there was a personal phone call and it was a very quick phone call. 
and the quick phone call that consisted of me answering yes or no to being on Drag Race. And I did not know what that question meant at first. I thought maybe because I was so involved in makeup that I would be participating in doing makeup in it. But then I asked Drew on the phone, I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, do you want to be on the show or do you not? And my answer was yes. So I called my manager and I almost said no to it because Drag Race did not have the same trajectory yet. You know, I thought that it was going to ruin my makeup career. Like, oh my God, now I'm going to be a reality show person and I'm never going to be taken seriously as an artist. Who knew that Drag Race would now be what it is? So I almost said no to it. But I said yes, and it was the best decision I ever made. And, and I think a lot of people who know this story either understand it or they think that I was, like they decided before I even got on that I was going to win. And I don't think that's the case. I think they just needed something to kind of throw a, a wrench in the wheel a little bit, kind of fuck it up a little bit, you know? Here's this drag queen who doesn't like to wear tits, who uses culture and fashion as a reference rather than just pageant. I think there was a purpose in it. So you walk in the workroom and you see this person, RuPaul, who you know, and you see all these other queens who are having their Tyra Banks moment, right? They're meeting their idol. How much were you playing a part in sort of making it not seem that you have this rich history that the two of you had? Well, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't just Rue. Like, Rue was a part of it. But, you know, before I went on to Drag Race, I was already a pretty well-known makeup artist. I was a person who was working within the industry. So my excuse to it was, why shouldn't I have known RuPaul? I live here in fucking L.A. I'm the makeup artist guy from America's Next Top Model. Who do you think I'm hanging out with? I'm not from the center of the country. I grew up here in Southern California. I work in Hollywood. I work in show business. How the fuck could I not know a good majority of the people, including some of the judges? Billy B was a friend of mine. Mike Ruiz, I knew. Santino Rice, I knew. Margaret Cho, I knew. You know, so there was a a list of people and they would sometimes judge me very fairly in the sense that they would treat me harsher. But there was always a wink because I did know these people, the judges. Jody Watley, who's one of my idols, she used to be one of my customers when I worked at MAC Cosmetics. There were so many factors that went into this. I had to do a lot of faking through it. And some of the girls knew that I was faking, you know, and that I would have to kind of zip my lip a little bit and really just kind of immerse myself into the competition and not think about that part. Because the judges and Rue, as a rule, they never really spoke to us. So there was never any favoritism on set other than the acknowledgement, maybe with a look in the eye at Mike Ruiz when I saw him, (laughs) or Santino, or Margaret, or, you know, so there were some moments where I had to really fake it. So you win this crown, and as you mentioned earlier, it's just such a different show at that point. You step on the show now, and if you're in one episode, you can build a brand off of that, you know? You're set. Back in the day, at the time when you were on, it wasn't like that for the show. There wasn't social media. The fandom wasn't so... There was a fandom, obviously, but they weren't as vocal and they weren't as invested in the way that they are now. Right. When you finished the show, what happened to your life immediately thereafter? Did everything change? 
Um, it did change. And we were so new in the process that we didn't know what to do with that life. Manila and I in particular is what I mean, because Manila at the time was a graphic designer working for a firm, had a job, had health insurance, had like a full gig going as a graphic designer. And she was still considering whether or not she should keep that job. That's where we were at. Twitter was probably the only like mass way of communicating with people. There was no Instagram, Facebook, perhaps, if you had a fan page, which was still a very new concept. So it was definitely an adjustment. If I would have known what the girls are charging now, I would have charged a lot more then. That's for damn sure. So that year in between, you know you won this competition, but you have to keep it a secret. I imagine you have your winnings at that point, but what did you do for work immediately thereafter? Did the tour begin right then? As soon as I got home, I dropped my shit off at my apartment and I went back on tour on the, the European and Asian leg of Adam Lambert's tour. We had only done America until I went on Drag Race and then they took a break. So immediately after I went back to work and I traveled all through Europe and through Asia. I was able to sit on this little like secret for a while while I was still traveling the world with my friends and with a rock band and just living, living the fucking rock and roll dream, you know? And then when I came back at all, it started. Like as soon as I came back, it was like, okay, here it is. Drag Race season three. It's on air now. Everyone's watching. I mean, but even still then people were, the fandom wasn't really even as big. I remember the night that the first episode aired, they were showing it at Mickey's in West Hollywood. And I showed up and I wore my eyeball hat and the full outfit that I walked. Nobody gave a flying fuck. Nobody cared. This is how, how much Drag Race has grown. Like I wore the iconic outfit and nobody cared. I was walking around the bar in it, trying to get a drink, no, nobody cared. I'm very glad that even like 10 years after, nine years after the fact, I'm still working and people still care. And I think that has a lot to do with just having good manners and realizing that, uh, that we're all lucky, that we're all very, very fucking lucky to get you know endorsements to talk about shavers and alcohol and people send us fucking money. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very lucky, lucky time to live. I love that you say that. I think that is the mark of a smart person in terms of navigating industries like this, because I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, but often people have a perception that to get ahead, they need to be cutthroat and mm-hmm. to not be respectful towards others. And in my experience, especially with interviewing so many people, the people that I connect with the most are the people who sort of maintain a level of gratitude all throughout their career. Oh, you must. You must. I think that is the key to it. I think there's, a, you know, not many people who have been in the position that I've been in have been able to kind of keep it for as long as I've, I've been able to do it. It, it is gratitude. It is, it's, it's realizing that it could all be taken away. And there's no, no more perfect time for us to realize that than now. Girl, you can't go to the club. You can't go and just make the tips right out of people's hands. You have to be creative. You have to be resourceful. You have to find your way through this, and you ultimately have to survive. And so if you realize that pandemic or no pandemic, if you just know that whatever good is given to you can always be taken away, it's a little bit morbid and it's a little bit goth, but hey, that's how I've always lived. I just know that that it could all be taken away. And that's what I'm experiencing now in a sense, you know. 
So many of the girls these days that are on the show take out thousands and thousands of dollars in loans. I mean, we hear stories about mortgaging homes even. Economic disparities have been addressed on the show a bit, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on queens who shell out thousands and thousands of dollars on you know, runway-ready looks versus those who are a little bit more scrappy and make things more on a budget. I'm somewhere in between those two. You are. I love making things. For instance, the only thing that I've actually been doing since I've been in quarantine is constantly, every day, making things. And by the time this is over and I'm ready to go back on stage, I will have a bounty, a fucking arsenal of gorgeous costumes to wear. But that's what I do. I like that part. I like the bits of garbage and drag. I don't like it to be so pristine and so perfect that you lose sight of the creativity of it. And that's why I always try to keep my hands in the process. That's why I always like to make my own things and take the time to do the tedious stuff that people don't want to do because they're too busy. But that's you know, one of the reasons why I think I won Drag Race was because it was a season where we had to make a lot of stuff. And that is my niche. That's what I do. I think that a lot of the money is being wasted by a lot of the queens, but that's the trend. Trend alert, waste your goddamn money. I know how much it costs to make one music video for a queen. I've done a few, and I know that some of them have bigger budgets, but I'm like, dude, you just fucking wasted $25,000. Maybe it's just because I'm older and I know how to pinch a penny a little bit more. or I'm a little bit more frugal, but I try to find a balance in between. There are things that I like that I buy because I like collecting and I, and I feel like it's always an investment into the artwork that I do. But mostly I like to have a very artisanal, hand-hewn kind of feel to my things. And if it does seem a little garbagey, then that's part of it. I think that's, that's still very, very important. Yeah. So I asked a lot of your fans to submit questions. So I want to turn to one of them. This is a fan submitted question from Johnny from the All Right Mary podcast. And it's a really good question. Okay. I would love to hear Roger's perspective on the evolution from fashion to performance on Drag Race. The earlier seasons of Drag Race, I guess they featured a lot of make it work moments that called to a time when I feel like drag was grittier and all encompassing of a performer's creative skills. I mean, I know I miss watching a queen walk down the runway knowing it comes from all parts of them. And I also know that it's certainly like this great time to be a fashion designer whose looks are featured on Drag Race. But I feel like the casual viewer of the show might give more credit to the performer for the look on the runway rather than the designer behind it. And so, you know, I know all these queens are popping up all over and some make their own clothes and some outsource them. And this just creates something of an access imbalance. So... I just, I wonder what Raja's perspective is on how Drag Race as a platform has shaped which skills queens are honing off the show. Hmm. Wow, that that is a tiered and layered question. Mm. But yeah, I get it. I see exactly what he means by that. Because, you know, I grew up where drag, it wasn't the industry. We didn't have all these like designers that you can go to. We didn't have B. Calla and Diego Montoya. and, And I love all of these people. You know, they have helped me in times when I needed some things made. You know, it's good because it's it's giving these people work. You know, we all want to work and we all want to create and we all want to use our creativity as work. So I'm very excited about that. But 
I do miss that a lot about drag. I think that the queens now come on prefabbed. They have the costumes already made by someone. They come in with a tagline that was already pre-rehearsed in their minds. And that's the thing that is now missing from drag. I'm going to sound like a complete dick by saying this, but I didn't do drag to read books to kids. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that there are drag queens that do that and that that it's so acceptable that libraries are, why the fuck would I want to be in a library at 11 a.m. reading books to kids? I you know that's not why I did it. I did drag because of the grit, because of the punk rockness of it. I grew up in the club kid era. I remember going to New York City in the 90s and in drag, you know, stumbling in the streets in the Lower East Side. And that's drag to me. So I call it add to cart drag because everything is add to cart now. You can get a fierce, we didn't even have lace fronts when I was on Drag Race. A lace front wig was something that only people wore in, on theater and opera. And they were usually handmade by artisans who you couldn't just buy one. Now it's, it's, what is expected of you? You must have lace front wig and it's part of the jargon and vocabulary of it. But, you know, I, I miss that part about drag. I miss that part about drag race too. I think it all sort of ended like after season six and then everyone showed up with these pre-made outfits. You know, I still love just throwing on a bunch of colored saran wrap all over myself and calling that an outfit. Why not? Who says that it has to be encrusted in rhinestones? Which I will. Like, I have a project that I'm staring at right now to my right that I'm going to encrust in rhinestones. But, you know, it's that part of it. The pride that you put and the love into making something. Like, I created this entire thing from head to toe, and now I'm going to present it to an audience. It's, it's a different feeling. It has a different emotion. It's a, a different type of poetry. Yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on sort of the fandom getting much younger. Because, you know, you mentioned this idea of like, you don't want to be reading kids' stories as a drag queen. And there's this way in which events like DragCon, for instance, have become so family friendly. And it's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. No one is saying otherwise. But there is something to be said about the youth fandom that's come in. What are your thoughts on, because I feel like every season the audience has gotten younger and younger and younger. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on sort of contending with teen fans? I love it more than I hate it. And I, and I love it and hate it. Uh, but I love it more because I think it's nice to have, you know, I have cousins who are teens, preteens, 13, 15 years old, who I know for a fact are queer kids. And to be a person who can be a beacon and a person that people look up to and look as a source of inspiration and aspiration is a great time to be in. You know, I like it. But, hey, drag is drag. I'm a potty mouth, pot smoking, wine swilling, 46-year-old gender artist. And I have... 46 years of life experience to talk about. You know, I've been doing my solo shows and, and sometimes there's a 12-year-old in there and I'm talking about being called Cocahontas in the early 2000s because I had long hair and did the most coke, you know? And there's a nine-year-old in the audience and I have to warn the parents. It's like, this isn't the library. This is, it's 8.30 p.m., 9 p.m. in a cabaret bar. You're going to get the stories that the 46-year-old queen... I'm, I, you know, I can only be Disney to an extent. 
I am a Disney princess. When you meet me, I will hug you and love you and talk to you in the sweetest voice. But the actual story that I have to tell is one that has a lot of grit and it is raw and it involves a lot of curse words. And I might say prolapse and whiskey in the same sentence. So it's like, don't expect anything else from me. There's another show for that. There's another queen. Apparently I just learned from a friend in Australia that there's 153 RuPaul's Drag Race queens. If my shit is too crazy and too explicit, yo, go see Nina West. Tune into her, you know? She does that and she does it well. You know, I'm not that girl. I'm not the one and I don't have to be. And that's the thing about drag that we have to remember. We don't have to be the other person. We don't have to look, emulate. All we have to do is be ourselves. And that is the point. That is what's important for young people to learn. And that part excites me. But you ain't gonna get more out of me or less out of me in order to, uh, to make your kid feel better. Your kid needs to know that prolapses and whiskey exist and cocaine. And cocaine, yeah. I've always wanted to ask you this, and so I'm going to try and see what happens. So in March 2019, Alexis Mateo appeared on Hey Queen and said this quote, My sisters from season three know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a reason why we got a break of three weeks after that episode. It was very pageant. It was very crazy. It was out of control. It was real. By that episode, she's referring to the infamous Shangela versus Mimi throwdown. I don't have a sugar daddy, sweetheart. Everything that I've had, I've worked for. And I worked for to get, and I've built myself. So I need you to know that 100%. I don't have a sugar daddy. I've never had a sugar daddy. If I wanted a sugar daddy, yes, I probably could go out and get one because I am what? Sickening. You could never have a sugar daddy because you are not that kind of girl. Baby, everything I've had, I've worked for, and I've gotten myself. I built myself from the ground up. Bitch! What can you tell us about what happened? Rue wasn't in, in the best health, from what I understand, from what I remember of it. And as part of the insurance clause or policy that happens in production, if the host of a show, for any reason, they think that their health is being compromised, it's going to affect an entire production. It affects the lighting guy, it affects the, the editors. So what they did was they shut it down for almost a month or almost three weeks. And I actually just went back to work. I actually went back to work with Adam for a few weeks and then I came back. So it wasn't even like a, an issue for me, but I think she's making it a lot more dramatic than it actually was. You know, she's from fucking Tampa. What does she know about production? What did she know at the time about production? So I don't know, it was just, I think she made it, I think she's, she made it a lot more dramatic than it actually was. But we did go home for three weeks. And if you watch between those two episodes, you see one episode where we're just fully clean and shaven. And then the next episode we're bearded and our hair's longer. Yeah, that did happen. And uh, when we came back from production, Rue knew that it was a big deal for us because we had taken time out for this production. We had quit whatever existing jobs that we had to be there. So when we arrived back onto set, Rue had given us all these little cute little square-shaped boxes, each of us, and inside was a ceramic little container that said dolls on it, and they were all Jonathan Adler. It said dolls in it because you could put your pills in it. But since she called us dolls, so we each of us, all of us from season three, have one of these containers. And when I had my Tic Tac lunch with Rue, I kept my Tic Tac, 
and I put it inside the dolls and I have Rue sign it and my actual 10 year old Tic Tac is still in there. That's incredible. Yeah. I love when you first see the Tic Tac when you say, what is this Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> it's so good. I have that Tic Tac, that same exact Tic Tac. I kept it and I put it inside the little jar that says dolls on it that Rue had given all of us as a thank you for our patients for, for waiting the three weeks that we did to yeah. come back and go back into production. So I'm sure over the years, you've read some stories about RuPaul that pop up from time to time. You know them, you've read them, we know them, we've read them. What has it been like for you as someone who knows the real person to watch the ways in which Rue has kind of become, Rue's legacy has become somewhat complex in the last couple of years through various interviews that he's done and things that he said. You know this person though, and I believe that you regard this person very highly. What's that been like for you? It's like a relative that you respect very much, but you don't always uh, agree with their politics, but you love their sense of style. And they make a fierce-ass fucking scalloped potato at the family Christmas dinner, you know? So I look at Rue as somebody that I've always admired, somebody that I have always looked up to and aspired to be in one way or another, but I don't always agree with her. I don't always agree with her, I, just because she is my idol. My idols are people who are imperfect. So I accept those imperfections and I do consider those things to be imperfections and flaws in her personality that at any age could be fixed if looked at or treated in the careful. You know, it's difficult because there's things that I very, very much disagree with. Like for years, I've always thought that trans and drag kings should be introduced. There needs to be a bearded queen on there to really, really represent what drag has become as a result of drag race. So to me, it's like there's those moments where I wish that those conversations wouldn't be happening with RuPaul's name involved because I always thought that. So that part I don't understand. But it's her show. It ain't my show. If it were up to me, it would be a way different thing. And I will always, always respect RuPaul. I will always look at RuPaul as somebody who really has been a presence in my life and helped me start my careers. And I'm saying careers, plural. So that respect, I will never talk badly about RuPaul. I mean, I'll tease her the way I do with Tyra Banks, but those, especially those two people in my life have definitely been people that, you know, I can tease and, and make fun of a little bit, but I will always respect them. She's a very private person. So I don't know what is in her mind. I know what her influence has been in my own personal life. So I'm just going to go with that. One last question. There has long been rumors. I'm, I'm talking a lot about rumors. Maybe I should stop listening to so many rumors. Um, but there's long been rumored this idea of an all winner season. And mm -hmm. actually, we've seen that play out on Survivor. And it actually was really wonderful. I don't think it will ever actually happen. So I'm not asking you this question with any ounce of seriousness, maybe a little because, you know, hope. But what <laughs> do you think an all winter season would be like? Wow. I, th I actually think about this a lot because those rumors have been passing through me as well. Like I've been hearing like even some people at World of Wonder who have just kind of like hinted, but never really, you know, I mean, it's been years, but I don't think everyone would do it. I don't think, I think what they would probably do is probably try to get as many winners as possible to 
get at least 10 people on there because I don't think as far as where we're at right now that everybody would want to participate. You know, I don't think uh, Bianca Del Rio would want to do it. She's a fucking multi-millionaire, I think. I don't know. She's just like, why? But I would do it. I love it. I've always loved being on TV. I love reaching a new audience and building on that idea of more and more people learning about me is wonderful. So if I could be on an All-Stars, I would do it. I'm pretty much ready. Fuck, this quarantine, I've made so many new outfits. They could do it like as soon as it's done. We could start a whole all-star season if they want and I have and I'm ready. But you heard I, think it, would, I think it would be fun. I I don't know what my stamina or patience would be like after ten years. I don't like to be told what to do ever, and that's what happens a lot of the times behind the scenes. Like you can't even go to the bathroom unless there's somebody following you. It's very invasive. I'm a middle-aged person. It's like, I don't know if I can handle being bossed around and the pressure. That's the other problem that I would have if I went on to an All-Stars. If those people even tried to come for me and talk about anything that I wore, I would have to walk off the edge of the stage and tell them to their face with spit flying in their mouth to shut the fuck up. I would never take it. That would be the, the hardest thing for me is to listen to any of those people tell me what I should and should not be wearing or how I should behave. But I would try. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely try. I would try. I love that. I want to thank you so much for your time. You are just unlike anyone else out there. And that makes me so happy to know that you exist in this world and that especially queer people have you to look at and learn to perhaps take life a little less seriously and enjoy everything that we do have yes absolutely well said i mean if i if there was an end if there was if there was a closing paragraph to the memoirs that i will eventually write it'll sound something like that i'm evan ross katz shut up evan is produced by alden peters with additional editing by ryan killian kraus We just want to take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.